All right. Well, let's get into it, shall we? My name is Kerry Snyder. I have been a pastor for over 20 years um, in California, starting in San Diego, California, where I grew up, Arizona, Indiana, and here in Colorado. And now I work for a um, company that coaches churches on how to use data and analytics to know their community and to be able to reach out to their community and meet felt needs of that community and also how to disciple and grow their people. And so it's a little bit different role for me than being in the church for 20 years and um, it's, it's been interesting. So I'm super thankful to get to hang out with guys like Jeff and Andrew and then have me back. And Andrew just thinks I'm okay because I don't hit dingers like him. I'm more of an all-around player, you know, can actually play defense and stuff like that. Not quite as good as Jeremy over there, but better than Andrew. But I don't hit like either one of them, so I just had to get that in there. I did get a text from Jeff just like 10 minutes ago, and just to let you know what he's doing this morning, this is what it says, it says, hey man, praying for you, thanks for being there, know you do a great job. I'm heading to Wrigley Field, tough life. It's the Cubs, it's not the Red Sox, so you know, whatever. Uh, heading to Wrigley Field, worshiping with my earbuds on in the elevated train in Chicago. Give everyone my very best. So, very best. I don't know what that means, but you have it from Jeff at least, okay? Well, we are going to dive right in. You guys are in this Life of Christ series, and last week Jeff talked about, uh, two weeks ago, Jeff talked about Old Testament prophecies that talked about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. And then last week, you looked into the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and all of that and what that meant. And so today, I get the exciting opportunity to talk to you about Jesus' family and where Jesus comes from. So what better place than to dive into than the genealogies, right? Like, who doesn't want to go into genealogies? That's the most important thing. I saw a hand is like, no, I don't want to read about genealogies. And here's the embarrassing thing. Uh, I forgot my Bible in my backpack. So Andrew, can you grab me a Bible? Like you can either grab that one or whatever one, I don't care. I came up with my laptop and I know it's awkward to have a laptop for like a speaker, but here's my morning. You don't have to grab mine, dude. You can grab whatever one. I, I know we're, the things are the same, I think, unless you guys use a funky one here. I don't know. Okay. All right. Good. So my printer wouldn't work this morning. My, here's my usual cadence when I speak. I vomit a bunch of ideas onto a, a piece of paper, and then I don't touch it like on Friday or most of the day Saturday. Then Saturday night, I kind of go back and take all those vomited ideas and put them into a nice outline. And then Sunday morning, I revisit that outline, see if I want to make any changes, and then I print it off. Well, as I was doing my usual routines this morning, my printer was like, mm, I just can't today. You know, like I don't have the ability to even today. And so you're not getting a, a printed out version of this. So using the trusty old laptop. So I apologize for that. But I wasn't kidding about diving right into the genealogies. So if you have your Bibles, whether on your phone or this version of it, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. And I know you probably woke up this morning going, you know what, I just feel like a good message on the genealogies because that's usually where I spend most of my time when I get up and read the Word. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And yes, I'm going to read through this because it's important and it's going to set up the rest of the message. So stick with me. And there will actually be some highlights up here that we're going to talk about in just a minute. Not the whole verse, but some highlights will be up there on the screen behind me. And Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. 
Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab was the father of Nashon, Nashon was the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. I'm using all of my like seminary and Bible school knowledge here just to pronounce names, okay? So, Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoam. Jehoam was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim. And his brothers born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile, Babylon... Jehoiakim was the father of Sheatel. Sheatel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abed. Abed, the father of Elikim. Elikim, the father of Azar. Azar, the father of Zadok. By the way, these are great baby names. Andrew, I know you guys are expecting. So if Zadok jumps out to you, go for it, dude. Like that's Zadok. Was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathen. Mathen was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. We got through it. Not that painful. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Now, why is this important? Well, there's a couple of things that you need to understand. Whenever you're reading any book of the Bible, you have to understand who was the author and who was he writing it for. So this is Matthew. And Matthew is an Israelite, and he is writing to the Israelites. And so the Israelites, this is like a who's who. He's setting it up. He's saying, look, this is why we can trust that Jesus is the Messiah. Because if you go back to those Old Testament prophecies that Jeff talked about two weeks ago, these are saying, look, these are coming to fruition, especially Jesus coming from the line of David, which traces all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When the Israelites would speak of God, they would often say the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is a roadmap saying this person that's coming into this world, this Jesus, the Messiah, is important. And all of the Old Testament prophecies had led to this point. And I'm giving you a roadmap to show you that truth. And what Matthew is also doing, he is, he is establishing the lineage. It's, it's kind of like, has anybody ever done like 23andMe or Ancestry.com and, and like check that stuff out? No? Good. Because you don't want your dad out there. That's what I'm, I work in data. It's, I, I haven't. But most of us do that sort of stuff as like a hobby, right? It's like, hmm, I want to check out where I came from. Oh man, I'm related to General Ulysses S. Grant. Or I'm related to Custer. Sorry, he didn't have a good ending, right? Like, I'm related to George Washington. I'm related to this. When we did our um, genealogy, this was my mom, like, years ago, doing study in libraries and all sorts of stuff before Ancestry.com came out and all that sort of stuff. She found out that we were related to William Wallace's brave heart, freedom, right? That guy, his best friend. <laughs> 
that didn't go where you thought it was going, right? Me neither. So basically, Sir Arthur Murray was William Wallace's right-hand dude, and they were the two that started the revolts against the British. And Sir Arthur Murray went on to die in a battle called the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which is right outside of Stirling Castle in Scotland. And that's right where Braveheart kind of picks up. So I missed it by that much, <laughs> right? If it had been Wallace that had gotten the arrow, I might have a different ending, right? I might be in a different place. But there are 241 people in front of me, and then once those 241 people are gone, I get Stirling Castle. So if anybody in here is a trained assassin, I'm not saying I'm planning anything, but we need to talk after this, okay? That would be really cool. That's my ancestry. That's my heritage. We do this for a hobby. But to an early Israelite, an early Jew, this was everything. They could trace back their lineage. And so to tell you somebody else's lineage was of utmost importance, especially if that person is to be the one that is promised, the Messiah, the Savior. And so that's what Matthew is doing here. But Matthew is doing something that's really, really odd because he's indicating a change because in this lineage is something that wouldn't be included in other Jewish lineages. Women. There are women included in Matthew's genealogy, and that's unheard of. But Matthew is indicating that there is a change coming, that this Messiah will not just be for these good Jewish Israelite men, but it would be for everybody. Because not only does it include women, it also includes Gentiles. It's crazy. It's showing us something different. Now, if we look at the slide... There's a few of the highlights that are in there, and I just want to point out some of these things. There's a different genealogy. There's a different thing going on here. And some of these, some of these highlights are, are, are a little interesting. They stand out to us. We have the four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. All four are either non-Israelites or connected to non-Israelite families. Not only is it weird for Matthew to include women, but these women are associated with sex scandals. Not something that's really a smart move when you're trying to convince people that the Messiah is coming through this lineage. In our humanness, we'd expect God's family album to be filled with people who live stellar lives, the family of God, the people we expect empathy. But Abraham said that his wife was his sister twice so that he wouldn't have to fight for her. Abraham was a liar and a coward. Isaac did the same thing and then he got caught snuggling up to her. Weird. Jacob lied to his father, cheated his brother, ripped off his father-in-law. Tamar, the first woman we in here, dressed up as a prostitute to get Judah to sleep with her so that she could be included in the family. Rahab actually was a prostitute. Ruth was a Gentile who was despised and she was from a despised country. And then King David, good old King David. King David deliberately disobeyed God, was an adulterer, a murderer, a liar. Then we come to King Solomon. Solomon let his wives, yes, wives, and there were a lot of them, worship foreign gods. And it got him and all of them into a lot of trouble. Rehoboam split the nation of Israel in two. Many of the kings listed in Jesus' genealogy were not good dudes, they often worshiped false idols. They did many cruel things. Manasseh, who was, who, was, who was 
mentioned by name, actually sacrificed his own son to an idol. This is not the shiny, happy family album that we thought Jesus should come from. Matthew could have highlighted Jesus' connection to Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the matriarchs of Israel. Instead, he mentions Canaanites, prostitutes, Moabitess. They'd be associated with Israel's covenant failure and sin and rebellion. Matthew wants to, his readers to know, and he wants us to know, future generations to know, that God uses all types of people, everyone, all types of people to move his plan forward. This is a portrait of God's ever-expanding kingdom as we move further and further into the Gospels when Jesus declares in Acts chapter 1 to his disciples, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That was to the Jews. His disciples were probably like, right on, Jesus. Yes, we'll go to the Jews. We like those people. That's us. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Okay, people outside of Jerusalem, the Judea, more, more Israelites. Great, we're all for it. You'll be my, be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to all Judea and to Samaria. What? We hate those people. They're not like us. They're mixed race. They're Gentiles who married Jews and, 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 and they messed up the bloodline. You want us to witness to them? We're with you on Jerusalem and Judea, but Samaria, you sure? And then to all the world. Wait, there's more? <laughs> more people who aren't like us? So this is a foreshadowing of Jesus' ever-expanding plan of the gospel being for all people, of all races, of all backgrounds. It's already showing us the beauty that comes. There's another reason for this genealogy. And why it includes so many mistakes and screw-ups and sinful people. And here's the reason why. How many of you have seen Toy Story 4? Anybody? Okay, one. You and me, we can have a conversation. No. This is a character from Toy Story 4. Forky, right? Now, I love the Disney movies. I'm a kid at heart. Disney movies are great. I'm super excited for the new Lion King next week, right? That was like one of my favorite movies. But Toy Story has, has, there's something about Toy Story that I just love. And Toy Story 4 by far has been my favorite. I laughed harder than in any of the other Toy Stories. I, I shed tears. My kid's looking at me going, Dad, are you okay? Like, yeah, buddy, I'm good. But here's what this movie does, and it's amazing how they can do this. They can take toys, not even real toys, but like animated toys, and they can make them seem relatable. Like in Toy Story 4, Woody kind of discovers what he really wants and what he really desires in life, and it's not what you would expect. And I connected with that because it's kind of what I am passionate about, what I love. And this character, Forky, he's made out of a spork, a, some, some uh, googly eyes, some putty, a broken popsicle stick. And for the entire movie, he considers himself trash until he really realizes what his purpose is. I connected with that. It's a movie, an animated movie about toys that I related to. And the reason that Matthew includes so many broken people in the genealogy 
is because he goes, I want you to know that you can relate to this. And even more than that, I want you to understand that Jesus relates to you. It's a very pointed message. Because here's the first point of it. God is not phased by our humanity. It doesn't frighten him. It doesn't scare him off. It doesn't make him concerned about whether or not we can be used by him. He's not phased. Why? Because his own family lineage is messed up. So when he comes to us and says that I want to do something in you and through you to impact this world, there's nothing that you can do in your life that phases God, that causes him to to back off, to say they're too dirty, too messed up, I can't do anything with them. Look at John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, flip over. We're we're done in, in Matthew for a little bit, and you can flip over to John chapter 1. It's another one of the Gospels. And just to give you a quick rundown while you're turning there, Matthew was written by a Jew for Jews. Mark is more action-oriented. It focuses more on the, um, the works of Jesus, the miracles, the thing that he did, it re- it, things that he's done. It reads like an, an action movie. There's constant movement. Jesus is constantly doing things. Luke is written by uh, Luke, who was a Gentile, or a, uh, uh, he was a doctor, Okay. And so he's very researched. He writes a lot of details. And so it's a very detailed account of everything that happens. Matthew and Luke is where we see the birth stories that we're going to be looking at today. But John, John is written by a guy named John, obviously. And he's known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so it's written as a love story. And so the beginning of John doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It begins with a different telling of Jesus coming into this world. And in John chapter 1, It says this, in the beginning, the word already existed, the word was with God, the word was God, and he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. He's talking about Jesus here. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. As he says, I, I, the light shines in the darkness, I wonder if he's thinking about the same genealogy, the same lineage that Jesus came from, because it's a dark lineage. Not everybody is stellar people. And so I'm wondering if John is thinking as he's writing this, I'm wondering if he's thinking like, there are some pretty screwed up people in Jesus' lineage, and Jesus is the light in the middle of that, and he's giving light to everyone. And it continues on. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came that to which was his own, but it did not receive him. Jesus enters fully into humanity, and he's not faced by it. The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. You don't move into a neighborhood that you're intimidated by. You don't move into a neighborhood that frightens you unless you have a plan to redeem it. I have a friend who works in downtown Detroit, one of the worst areas of Detroit. It's ridden with gang violence, drugs, 
poverty. And he and his wife and their two small children about two years ago said, hey, we're going to move to that neighborhood. And I went, are you freaking crazy? And he said, I just believe God wants us to transform. So what they did, they did something incredibly brave. They moved dead into the center of that neighborhood and then they unlocked all their doors and said, everybody's welcome. And you know what happened? They started attracting crazy people just like them. And that neighborhood isn't being gentrified. It's being transformed to a place of care and love. There's no coffee shops still. There's no Starbucks. There's no Trader Joe's. It's an impoverished, drug-ridden, gang-controlled neighborhood. But that's starting to change because of the love of a few people who have moved into the neighborhood as messy as it was and have decided to transform it with the love of Christ. That's exactly what Jesus did when he made his dwelling among us. And then we come to, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was a mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. So let's just look into the stories of Mary and Joseph right now. Let's look at Mary first. Luke chapter 1. So flip back the other direction, just one chapter if you were in John. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin. Now, if you remember the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah would come through a virgin to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to, a, to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will never end. But Mary asked the angel, how can this happen? I am a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. If you are a mother, put yourself in Mary's shoes for this moment. She's betrothed, which means all of the laws of marriage apply to the betrothed, to the engaged. She was to be faithful to that man that she was to be married to. If she were found to be unfaithful, she would be brought before the Sanhedrin. She'd be dressed in black. Then they would expose her to the entire community of Israel and basically shun her, labeling her a harlot, an unfaithful woman. The husband wouldn't have to pay anything to marry her. The marriage would be annulled before it even happened, and she would live out her life with this scarlet shame on her. Now, at this time, this age, this, 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 this time and place in history... Uh, it wasn't unheard of for young couples to be married. And so we're not only talking about somebody who's a virgin engaged to a man to be married, facing this wrath, but we're talking about probably 14, 15-year-old girl. 
Jewish customs allowed young women to be married as early as 12, and the men were probably anywhere between 15 and 18. So Joseph is, Joseph is probably 16, 17, 18 years old. Mary's probably 13, 14, 15 years old. That's a lot for a teenager to take in. She's a virgin. She's young. She's engaged. All as it should be. And it says, when the angel appeared, she was greatly troubled. Yeah. If an angel ever visits you, it's probably not likely because you wanted it, or you expected it, or you asked for it. It just happens. And so here's this teenage girl sitting quietly alone in her room, reflecting on her upcoming wedding and I don't know if she was dreaming about like what horse and carriage they would ride off in or any of that, but she's thinking about this and this angel just, boom, Mary, what's up? Who are you? How did you get in my house? And why are you radiating like a great white light? <laughs> like that's just crazy. And then he gives her this message and it says that she is greatly troubled. The NLT says that she's confused and disturbed. confused and disturbed. And it says that she tried to discern what the angel could mean. What, what do you mean? Who are you? What is going on here? And the angel gives her like these comforting words, like, do not be afraid. And oftentimes when we read the birth story and we read the story of Jesus, we often think of that like this peaceful, holy moment. You know, we think, oh, holy night, right? The stars are brightly shining. No crying he makes. I have two children, they cried all the time. This isn't something to just go, hey, don't be afraid. Okay, we're cool. Good. No problem. No, it says she's greatly disturbed. She's troubled. She's confused. She's trying to think of how will this be. She actually asked the angel, like, how can this happen? Because I'm a virgin. Look, angel, it's cool. You told me not to be afraid, but like A plus B equals C. There's been no A. There's no B. There should be no C. Like, how is this going to happen? You and I know how this thing works. Help me out here, man, because I'm having trouble trying to figure out how this thing is, is, is going to operate. But she ultimately wrestles with her thoughts, and before the angel leaves, she says, like, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be so. Imagine Mary's back and forth thoughts that led to, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be so. Now put yourself in, in not maybe Mary's place, but have you ever felt like God has asked you to do something that just seems, like, scary or crazy, or unorthodox, or a little bit out of your comfort zone. And imagine like, the, here's a really good one. Have you ever at, felt like God is asking you to talk to somebody? Just talk to somebody. I just want you to talk to that person. I want you to give money to this, to this homeless guy, and I want you to have a conversation with him. You know the conversation that goes on in your head when that happens, right? I work in downtown Boulder. We see these guys every day. And I, sometimes I feel like God's like, hey, I want you to ha stop, have a conversation, buy this guy a meal. What if he stabs me? Like, <laughs> what if he robs me? What if there's like a gang of them waiting behind Lolita's market just to jump me? And like, God, I really don't want to. I think you should. I don't want to. Well, yeah. The angel's asking Mary to bear a child. <laughs> it's a much bigger ask. So imagine the back and forth that goes on in her mind before she says, let it be so. 
but what an ex extreme example of faith. How powerful. Let's flip over to Matthew 18 to 24. We're going to look at Joseph real quick. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 24. And this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, again, Matthew pointing out the Old Testament prophecy that she would be, he would be born to a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message to his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God is moving into the neighborhood. So we see Joseph, a good man, he's faithful to the law, but he's also faithful to Mary. And it was his right within the law to call it quits, to divorce her. But he knew doing so would cause her to go through this terrible process. So he plans to do it quietly because he loved her. He wanted to honor her. He wanted to be her husband, but he knew he couldn't. He's faithful to the law. He's faithful to Mary. And so he plans to quietly divorce her. Until the angel shows up and gives him this same message. The angel shows up and says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Look, you guys are going to face a difficult road. People know that Mary is engaged to Joseph. They also know the wedding hasn't happened. They also know that Mary's pregnant. So what do you think the people of the town would say about Mary? And what do you think the people of the town would say about Joseph as he planned to stick with her? If we think about the humanity of Joseph and Mary. I mean, Mary could have said, no, I don't want that. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want anything to do with it. Do we know if God would have used her anyways? I don't know. I don't think so because he knows that Mary had a change of heart in that conversation with the angel where she said, let it be so. Look, I don't know how this is going to happen, but let it be so. But everyone must have thought that she was a liar and a cheater and promiscuous. And she knew that she would live with that the rest of her life. Joseph should have left Mary. People must have thought in that day that he was a coward, that something happened for staying, that he was afraid of not being able to marry again or continue on his line because that was incredibly important. So why would he stay with her? The power of God and the humanity of Mary and Joseph is mind-blowing when we really start to dive into it. Imagine Mary would have known what she would have lived with the rest of her life. Imagine Joseph, what he knew he would have lived with of what people talked about her and how they talked about them as a married couple. And yet they were willing to bear that burden, to bear that cross because they trusted in something greater. Today is my wife and I's 18th wedding anniversary. July 14th, 2001 is the day we got married. Going through this message, 
I cannot imagine sticking with someone if I had known that they had cheated on me. If I had known in the middle of our engagement or thought that she wasn't faithful, I would have pulled the ripcord on that thing so fast. Yet Joseph doesn't. He trusts God and he trusts Mary. As we see the story of Mary and Joseph, as we see the story of Jesus' genealogy, we realize that God isn't writing a perfect, beautiful little storybook. He's working in the nitty, gritty, fallen, ugly, sometimes unfaithful, sometimes faithful lives of people just like you and me. People who are redeemable, but people who are also full of faults, doubt, turmoil. The one comic characteristic across everybody in the lineage was they were, their propensity to, be, propensity to be downright human and sinful, just like me just like you. Some of you hearing this might be thinking, dang, and I thought my family was bad. Jesus had royal blood in him, royal blood. But he also had the blood of murderers, cheats, liars, prostitutes, pagans, swindlers. God can take the unlikeliest people with messed up situations, turn them upside down, and use them for his purpose. This is the last point. God entered fully into humanity to show us what it looks like to live fully human. In the form of Jesus, God entered fully into humanity amongst all its flaws, its warts, its ugliness to show us what it looks like to live fully human. Scripture tells us this in Philippians. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, entering fully into humanity and being found in appearance as a man. Notice it says appearance because Jesus himself never sinned, never. And it wasn't because he wasn't tempted. It was because he had such a connection to God the Father that he was able to override and overcome all of those temptations. That's a whole other message in and of itself. But that's what it's like to be fully human. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Look, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness. The writer of Hebrews picks up where Matthew leaves off in his genealogy, where the failures and doubts of Mary and Joseph come to fruition. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus fully entered into humanity, tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. He entered fully into humanity to show us what life could really be like to live fully human. Think about the ramifications of this for a moment. You and I 
do not have to fall prey to the power of sin any longer. Because Jesus set us free by his work on the cross and through the life that he lived connected to the Father, he was tempted in every way but did not sin. You and I carry the effects, the scars, the markings of every person who has a, makes a decision that hurts us. So did Christ. You and I are tempted in every way, every day. And yet through the power and the blood of Jesus, you can be free of it. And when we tell ourselves that we're failures, when we tell yourself that you'll never be good enough, you'll never measure up, you can't overcome, that's a lie from the enemy who doesn't want you to live fully human because to live fully human is to live like Jesus and that is the greatest witness and greatest example a dying and hopeless world can ever see. And so when the devil tells you you can't overcome, you'll never make it, you're not good enough, it's a lie because he knows for you to live like Jesus is to be fully human and fully alive and be the best representative of Christ that this world has seen. That's power. Jesus came from a messy family with people who made a lot of mistakes and people who had a lot of doubts and a terrified young teenage couple who wasn't sure what the road ahead held. These are mirrors of you and I. You probably sit here today full of mistakes, full of regrets, not sure where the road ahead is taking you, and maybe even today God is asking you to do something that you just don't think you can do. And yet we have examples in the lineage of Jesus and examples in Joseph and Mary that says Christ can do abundantly more than we could ever expect if we will trust him and stay connected to the Father. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for entering fully into humanity with all of its warts, all of its bruises, all of its ugliness. That you came through this, this, this frightened, terrified teenage couple who wasn't sure what was going on but trusted you anyways. And they trusted to cling to your promise and the goodness of who you are even though they couldn't see the road ahead. Thank you for, for dwelling in humanity and putting on flesh and bone and being tempted and showing us that it is possible to live life differently. Thank you for ultimately living that life that, that we're going to explore over the coming weeks and months. Help us to understand and realize what it means to live fully human the way that you did in connection with the Father and to overcome and to show people who you are through the way that we live, the decisions we make, and the hope that we have. In your name we pray, amen.